1: Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. This edition is produced in cooperation with the Society for U.S. Intellectual History. My conversation is with Jennifer Ratner Rosenhagen, the Merle Curdy Associate Professor of History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her book, The Ideas That Made America, a Brief History, published by Oxford University Press, is a sweeping examination of the key ideas that have infused American society. Moving across national borders, time, and within American culture, the author gives a well-written and spirited account of why ideas matter, beginning with how the name America came to be in the mind of European empires in the 16th century to the end of the 20th century when globalization, another form of empire, was on the mind of Americans. Along the way, Ratner Rosenhagen offers a tour through early European contact with Native people, the American Enlightenment, the romance of the New Republic, the remaking of the nation through the Transcendentalist movement, scientific discoveries, pragmatism, and modernism to the intellectual, social, and political ruptures of the late 20th century that owe a great deal to what came before. This bird's-eye view captures the significance of attending to ideas that motivated Americans to different forms of action and engagement. A great book for those unfamiliar with the intellectual history of America and for those wanting to connect different streams of that history. Here is my conversation with Jennifer Ratner Rosenhagen. Let me introduce you to the author, Jennifer Ratner Rosenhagen. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me, Lillian. Thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. Your work is a sweeping history of American thought and ideas that we're still living with. And you give one of the best introductions to intellectual histories I have ever read. It's very straightforward. It's not difficult to understand. And I think you've really uh, given people a service here because most people don't know what you know the history of thought is or intellectual history is. So first, before we get into it, tell us about yourself, about your background, and how you came to write the ideas that made America?
0: I guess I can um, start, um, although I won't give a, a long a long prelude. But basically, start where intellectual history started for me, and that was when I was 19 years old as a college student, signed up for a class called cultural and intellectual history, and really had no idea what what it, you know what it was, but it sounded um, sort of intriguing. Um, and I happen to have the good fortune of stumbling into a class with Christopher Lash, uh, which is a name probably many of your listeners know, you know, the famed intellectual historian slash cultural critic and author of The Culture of Narcissism, a major book of 1979. And what professor, then Professor Lash um, did was to introduce me to this world of doing American history. Yeah. So coming you know, coming to learn about American history, but not in the way that I had ever done before. Not by way of you know the big names and the big dates and the big wars and the big political um, figures and movements, but by way of ideas um, and by way of intellectuals and by way of major texts. And to me, this was just so revelatory and intoxicating, right? Because it was a it was just such an interesting way to to approach the past by way of the way that other people in the American past made sense of themselves and their world. Um, and already at age 19 to me, this just seemed so incredible that you could then get to know people from the past who wrestled with some of the things that I was wrestling with then as a 19 year old. And now many years later still wrestle with and could think about, you know, this is, is part of a longer ongoing problem or project in American life. Um, and so I ended up um deciding um, already at that age that I wanted to make this my life's work and had the good fortune to be able to do that. And that's actually something that I wanted to bring to this book, The Ideas That Made America. I wanted it to be for a general audience. um, And I wanted it to be for my students and for your students. um, And I wanted it to have that same kind of I don't know, you know, both gr- grandeur, if you will, but also the, the in, a, in a more modest way, you know, draw people into the particularities of intellectual history, and uh, um, show them why it can be such a such a great way for understanding the past, but also providing some moral and intellectual orientation for us today.
1: Well, most of the time when people are thinking about history, they're not thinking about ideas, or they're not thinking about thoughts. They're thinking about People, you know, building things, breaking things, uh, real tangible stuff, events, dates, uh, people moving from here to there. They're not thinking about a thought or ideas. And partly, I think, maybe because we think of uh, ideas, uh, a history of thought or a history of intellectual history would be something that's like very philosophical, idealism, disembodied, you know, abstracted. So how is the history of thought, the history of ideas, different. How is it not abstracted? How do you how do you put flesh on those ideas?
0: Well, I think um, you know you started by saying how this is just such a sometimes novel or, if you will, confusing way um, for for people or, or something that's just utterly mystifying. I mean, you you were so nice to compliment the introduction. Well, I wrote the introduction because after decades of trying to explain to people what I do. <laughs> you know, over and over again, what is intellectual history? I thought I would give it a go in the introduction, you know, trying trying to demystify it. Um, but so to me, the most important thing that intellectual history can do is to show that any of the ideas that we have today, you know, whether they're beliefs, whether they're political ideas, whether they're philosophical notions... They're not a project, product of nature or necessity. I mean, unless you're you're a person of faith and insist that they are, um, and then the conversation needs to look a little different, I suppose. But they're a a product of history, of historical contingency. Um, of, um, of of unfolding of history and so one of the things that i think is so important about intellectual history is to show how certain ideas that we come to hold as having real purchase or even being sacred how they came to be in the past and what process they went you know of revision and um, revision yet again to make it to where they are today and conversely ideas that were once, how to be true, how they lost traction, you know, how they lost buy-in, why they have faded from view. But you're right, Lillian, the, 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 you know, one of the, the, I, I certainly one of the impressions of intellectual history is that it's this sort of disembodied philosophical abstracted sort of thing and not truly, you know, history as in grounded in time and space, but that's, um, that's rarely the case. It's um, certainly not in the intellectual history that's being produced, you know, today uh, of our generation. And that is, um, I think, there's been a real commitment to showing ideas as they are produced by actual human beings in time and place, as a result of specific things going on, whether it's economic or political or social or environmental on the ground, to so to show the actual material conditions in which ideas are coming into shape, as well as show the way that ideas can have an influence on those material conditions. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, you know, that's where I think most of, of, of the work in intellectual history is being done today, is to not let it be sort of otherworldly and abstract, but really tie it to concrete human beings and concrete events.
1: Well, one thing, too, is uh, I want to take some a concrete example here. When we're thinking about something like democracy or equality, we think democracy, you know, philosophically can sound like some eternal concept, okay? That was there at the beginning of the founding of the world. But the idea of democracy had to evolve over time. People uh, defined it differently. How we think about democracy today is very different from how the founders of the nation thought about democracy. And so... Isn't, isn't history basically about the, that, that change over how we think about democracy and the events that really affected how we think about those ide- that idea?
0: Yeah. I mean, you, you, you picked up certainly one of the keywords of American intellectual history, democracy. Um, what was the other one you said? Equality. Perhaps. Equality. Equality. Right. That's one that, that unfortunately fades from view too often, uh, in my view. Justice is another key word. Um, liberty. Happiness is not unfrequently invoked um, in the context of American thought. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the, the goal of intellectual history is to show that not only how these ideas change over time. But even in any particular moment of time, there can, what, what Dan Rogers called d- contested truth, right? Like there's not a single period in, in American history where everybody who's using the word democracy means the same thing. Not at all. Part of the reason why a word like democracy has, is such a consensus word, is such a word that that so many people buy into and use is because it is so porous, so prone to redefinition. Yeah, that, that, it, that, that it's expansive, it's baggy. It allows for people to be holding very different ideas about what, what democracy is and arguing with each other and, and tussling with each other. Um, so that's I mean, that's one of the joys, but also one of the frustrations of intellectual history is even when you think you've pinned down an idea, if you stop and you listen carefully to the sources, you realize how kind of mer- mercurial that idea is, even sometimes at the level with, within a singular thinker.
1: Right. And it, it, yeah. And I think that sometimes when people ask me, just lay people ask me, uh, you're an intellectual historian, what does that mean? I'll give them that, I'll give them the idea of democracy because they can grab that. I said, okay, not every, it's not been defined the same way across time. People have changed, you know, the the Greeks had an idea of what that was, and it's very different from what we think of it today. And that's what I study. It's that the change. That's one of the things that I study. Let me ask you about, um, you know, the idea that, okay, Ideas really motivate action, or people start with an idea and then they go, they do something with that idea. Versus, people have things happen to them, events happen to them, and then the ideas flow out of that as they try to understand uh, their experience. That you know, thought is reflection on on lived experience, rather than lived experience is an expression of thought. This 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 conundrum of of thought and action. Can you, can you shed any light on the interaction between thought and action?
0: Well, um, I, I think, I mean, one of the things that I say in the book is that the thinking is where the historical action is at. Yeah. So that, you know, not that the thinking is sort of, you know, on the side or simply a reflection of the real story of American history, but what would American history look like if actually the thinking the wrestling with ideas, the arguing, the putting ideas into action, the being moved by ideas. What if that was the center of the story? And of course, as an intellectual historian, I happen to think that it is. Um, And so that's one of the things that that I try to do both in my teaching and, and also in this book is to say, what does history look like when the thinking um, is at the center of the story, then it comes to your question. Well, what comes first, right? It's a chicken or the egg. Does some event happen that makes an idea occur to somebody um, or is it that an idea happen? you know, has to come first in order for human beings to take some action on something. And I think um, it's obviously a, it's a combination of both. Um, so nobody ever, you um, uh, I mean, perhaps um, you believe that th- that human beings are born as a tabula rasa. That's true. But very few of us do intellectual history of infants, right? I mean, we tend to do intellectual history of people if they're not fully formed adults, but they're on their way to adulthood. That is to say, there's already they've already been exposed to ideas, right? They've already been exposed to beliefs. So there's no way to take out some sense of ideas already being Part of a precondition of experience, right? So, so one of the things that I try to show in the book, and I try to emphasize in my teaching, and or at least, and this is perhaps a view that would raise eyebrows among some of my colleagues, but I, I, I hope not too many. And that is, I don't think there's actually anything called pure experience that's separated from your wholly separated from a set of ideas and moral commitments that people have. That is to say, I think and I think intellectual history, you know, doing the research in this field pairs, pairs this out that, you know, people come to whatever their experiences by way of a certain set of ideas and commitments that they already have. Then the question is, do those experiences make them change those ideas? Right. Um, or do they insist on those ideas and push back against the experience? I mean, this is the, this is um the, you know, this is th- these are the things that I have to figure out a, 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 as an intellectual historian, and I, I mean, it's not, it's not, it's, it's something that I have to come to fresh and new for every thinker that I'm looking at or every event. Um, so, in other words, it's both a cause and an effect, and in some cases, it's more a cause. In some cases, it's more an effect. Um, but it's somewhere in that balance between. Um, you know, intellectual commitments or intellectual perspective, experience, and then the reformulation of that, um, ever, you know, ever anew, um, that is where, I mean, I, I would say is where frankly the, the motor of history is. I mean, this is, this is the engine that moves human history along and, and trying to figure out that balance, um, is, 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 is the work of, of, of our scholarship. And so I, anyway, it's just, I would say that I'm just try to be attentive to that and then try to pay attention in each particular case where that balance of power is.
1: Okay. Now we could be, um, we could study thought or ideas. We could also study individual thinkers. We could study uh, uh, intellectual movements uh, across time you know, how, what is the difference between, you know, studying a, just particular thinker and the, or think or an idea or a movement and what counts in that? I mean, what counts as intellectual work?
0: Um, I think that it depends on your, I mean, it depends on the question that you have and it depends on what it is you're looking for. Um, but I would say, I mean, I'm very, ecumenical in my approach. Um, um, In my own, I mean, I I draw from many different approaches. But I mean, my conception of intellectual history has room for all of those. It can be focused at the level of a single thinker. It can be focused at the level of a single text. It can be focused at the level of a single intellectual movement at a particular time, like feminism in 1848 or feminism in 1919, or, you know, whenever it may be, could also be something like feminism over a long durée, a much longer history. Um, So and even in terms of sources, I mean, I in my own work, you know, I, some of the, the texts that I use are very difficult, very demanding, you know, theological and philosophical tomes, but I also dip down into cultural history, um, into movies, into comics. Not often, <laughs> but but sometimes I do. Um, I love working with marginalia in texts. Yeah, so it's not just the book, the famous book that was written, but I love to see what writers are writing in the, those margins and in conversation with that that imagined interlocutor, you know, and imagine with those texts. So I, I think it depends on exactly what it is you're looking for. But all of these are records of human thought. And so all of them conceivably should have a role in the way we retell this past.
1: Okay. So what counts really as an idea worth studying? because uh, Is it because it has political influence, because it has value in some other way? What makes an idea something worth studying. And why is it, and I have to ask this question because this is one thing that's kind of getting to me right now, is why political ideas are the ones that get so much attention when we have so many, a whole broad culture with all kinds of other ideas running through it.
0: Well, um, Lillian, you share my <laughs> a longstanding grievance that I've had. And um, it's something that I've wrestled with myself. um, And that is to say, obviously, I think some political thinkers are interesting. I think political intellectual movements are important. I mean, our politics, this is very important. But I definitely think in the field of intellectual history, frankly, in the field of history in general, it has a real outsized presence in the scholarship and in our teaching. Um, And I think there, there are lots of reasons for that. Some, but you know, some of them, probably too too many to go to go through. But I agree with you that that there's a there's a real dominance of focus on on political thought or ideas that end up having some sort of political significance. You know, and by political, I don't necessarily mean, and I don't think you do either, strictly party politics. But you know what we mean is you know contestations in the public sphere about policy. Um, you know, about, about public policy um, and, and, you know, and how it manifests in law. So anyways, I think there's a place for that, but I also think there's a role, you know, for literature and of course literature can be political, but some of it is not at all. There's some philosophical, which is much more existential or cosmological. It's not, or ontological. It's not political. Um, It's, you know, some, lots of religious history certainly is informed by, Political issues, but not exclusively, and so I that's a balance that I try to seek in my own work, which is to look at other modes of discourse that have an influence and you know is a documentable influence that maybe isn't um, indifferent to political the political context or, you know, political parties or political institutions, but that's not really where the center of, of gravity is. Okay. So now
1: that we've kind of talked about that, we're going to go right into the book. We're going to get more particular into the book. You start off, uh, which I really like the fact that you start off uh, in the new world, America, the Americas is a new world and how the discovery or not, I guess I, I hate to use the worst discovery, but the encounter with the new world, the Europeans, uh, the European mind had to deal with deep religious implications to what they w- were seeing. It was an existential crisis for Europeans to find, uh, you know, this, this hemisphere. And can you talk a little bit about how, the, how encountering the America, what became known as the Americas, uh, influenced uh, European thought?
0: Um, Well, this is, I mean, so the the influence cannot, I I don't think the influence can be overstated. Um, And that is there, you know, with the early encounters, and by that, we're talking about, you know, the first generations, if you will, of explorers, the earliest settlers, um, coming, you know, coming to America, or, you know, what, what becomes known as America, and experiencing something that just did not line up in any obvious way with what they had read in the Bible. Um, or if it did, it took some pretty, um, it took some pretty, um, extraordinary gerrymandering of the Bible to make sense of what it is they were encountering in this new place. Um, what, what people were discovering in the new world also didn't line up with the natural sciences at the time. So what, you know, what what the natural or what were called natural philosophers in Europe, what they thought about the earth and the waters and all the living things upon it, um, when the first generations of of settlers are here and they're collecting seeds and they're coming into contact with new animal forms and they're meeting the Native Americans, right? All of this set um, European thought kind of put it into vertigo, if you will. Um, It didn't upend everything, of course. Um, um, Ideas are too tenacious for that. But basically the quote unquote discoveries of the flora and the fauna of the new world put pressure on European thought, um, which is both religious as well as you know, na- natural thought, although the two were, were, there was a seamlessness between the two. Of course, there was not a strictly secular thought at the time and forced European thinkers to reevaluate, you know, basically reevaluate um, pretty much everything um, fr- from their notion of of of, you know, early botany to their notion of their early conception of anthropology to their ideas about heaven and hell.
1: Now you, you follow the ideas that uh, ended up influencing what we now call the United States, even though there were Spanish and Portuguese and French peoples here also who came to, from Europe, but you're following more the, uh, the one, the ideas that actually influenced the forming of what we now call the United States.
0: So, yeah. And, and that's important that, um, that, uh, you know, the early um this isn't to say that the the you know English language or the uh, uh, English speaking colonists somehow had some you know intellectual and moral supremacy and thereby won out. That's a that's a product of just the contingency, you know, some historical accident, et cetera, et cetera. But in the early period, I mean, there, there's, it's, it's, it is a story not of, you know, strictly just the British Empire, but Spain had an empire and art and a bigger empire um, on the continent than, uh, than Britain did. France was a much bigger powerhouse at the time, um, and so the, this early period, even though you're right, the book goes on to explore what will become the United States, um, you know, predominantly English speaking, following from from many Anglo you know anglo norms it's this it's a it's a real hodgepodge uh, intellectually religiously linguistically uh for the first um centuries
1: so we've got uh this uh, embryonic uh united states somewhere on the east coast um can you let's talk about the influence of the the european enlightenment on on america and how it uh, how it ret- and how it how the, what Americans did with the European enlightenment, what they added to it. And so I'm talking about the adaptation and the movement across borders of ideas across the pond. Uh, and, and also they're encountering ideas with native people and other people who are also on the same, you know, vying for the same territory. So you've got all this big mixture. Can you talk a little bit about the, the Europe, the
0: enlightenment in America? Certainly. Um, Well, we, um, the, you know, what we, what's come, come to be known as the enlightenment, right? This sort of mid, starting the mid 18th century, a real proliferation of um, new ideas, new faith in human reason and rationality um, and a more mechanistic view of the universe and not necessarily um, get getting rid of a sacred um, view of the universe, although, of course, for Voltaire and many of the French thinkers, that's precisely what they wanted to do, but certainly a more naturalistic view of the universe. Um, America is both important to the development of that thought. So that is to say, what I was mentioning earlier, so many of the, the um, just the sheer discovery of America and all that it opened up for Europeans is really a catalyzing factor in the development of enlightenment thought. So that is to say, and I would go so far as to make a a claim that I believe um, is paired out by a recent book, um, Carolyn Winter's book, The American Enlightenment, or American Enlightenments, that what we call the European Enlightenment is inconceivable without America in it. That is to say, what America, even as a as a political, as a laboratory for the political ideas of the Enlightenment. So America is very much part of this transnational flow of ideas, of of images, um, and actually a traffic of goods. So much of, of what we consider to be Enlightenment science is coming out of things, materials that are sent from the United States to the capitals of Europe. Um, that. You know, make their way into laboratories that make their way into, you know, books about the flora and the fauna that make their way into the to the seminaries um, and the universities of Europe, um, and so the idea of America and the lived reality of America is very important for the European develop for the development of what we consider you know enlightenment thought in in Europe, but it was also important um, from America, and I don't even want to say that America is on the receiving end of it, but um, but what are, what would become, you know, the, the, the revolutionary generation, they're reading these texts, which are pouring out of um, different parts of Europe about, you know, the grandeur of man, about the capacity of man for self-rule and self-sovereignty. And they're being heavily influenced by those ideas. Um, And so, you know, with, without, I mean, so it's a kind of a, an interesting story of a kind of feedback loop between Europe and the Americas, if you will. But, of course, it's, it's predominantly European Enlightenment thought that has an extraordinary influence on the founding generation. Um, well, first the revolutionaries and then the founding generation.
1: And what's really interesting, too, is that you combine Enlightenment ideas with Protestant uh, theological ideas, and you get sort of a new thing. Sometimes they're not congruent with each other. Uh, sometimes they're in competition with each other, but they all become part of the mix. So let me ask you: What the, the Enlightenment also had some blind spots. How did some of those blind spots get um, become American blind spots? And I'm thinking specifically about the place of women or other races uh, in the whole scheme of man, uh, the idea of man. Uh, we didn't necessarily drop those
0: well um so there is a lot to still recommend uh, enlightenment thought as it you know was produced in the mid to the late um eighteenth century um but of course, we can read it now, we should be reading it now and seeing as you rightly say the blind spots um in um enlightenment thought, and so um you know when 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 you read let's say. Locke, or, you know, Hume, or um, even Kant, or you even come to this side of the Atlantic, and you read Samuel Adams, or or, or Thomas Jefferson. um, The first thing is, you know, they had a kind of a universal conception of man. Um, And by that, theoretically, what they meant was human beings, but in fact, they didn't, they meant literally man, and specifically white men. So when, you know, with all of this loving praise of the capacity of man to do X or Y, even though on some level they imagined this as a generalized statement about humanity when pressed they actually were very specific what they meant <laughs> and that is to say they didn't think that women had the same kind of intellectual capacity that that men did they didn't think that people of color although that you know that slaves or native americans had the same intellectual capacity and the same capacity for self sovereignty and so one of the things is that enlightenment thought even though when it talks about man 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 it's invoke it in it it aspires for that to be a claim about the human human beings but in fact in almost every single case it's about a very specific human being um and that's a that that's a, a, a human being with a particular race a particular gender sometimes a particular religion um and often what we would now call a particular class as well um and so that's one of the blind spots of enlightenment. Like, despite its claims for universalism, we, you know, we we have to do our due diligence in reading and and recognize that the aspiration, the idea of universalism, was actually very particular. Um. So that's one. And what what that means, Lillian, as you know, because you've studied this and you've taught it, is that you can have someone like a Thomas Jefferson who writes some of the most exquisite, you know, odes to human freedom while he is an owner of 600 human beings over the course of his lifetime.
1: Now, the, the, the ideas that were part of the European enlightenment were ideas in the mind of intellectuals, you know, at the very high level, but America was a place to actually experiment to actually, you know, put those ideas into practice in from almost like, yeah, blank slate, um, uh, and you've got Thomas Paine who comes along, and he's he's not an he's not an elite. He is a common man. He takes those ideas of you know of freedom and uh, you know pr- uh, individual sovereignty, and and not uh, kings and gods and all that. And he basically is part of what ignites uh, popular thinking uh, that gets behind the American Revolution. Can you talk a little bit about? how the how ideas that were more theoretical in Europe actually become lived out somehow in america
0: wonderful- that's such a um wonderful formulation um so thank you i'll I'll need to use that in my class this fall um yeah, that's precisely it. So these are, you know, in in Europe, these ideas about self sovereignty and democracy, um, and you know the, the the reach of human reason. You're right; it's at the level of of um, of philosophical thought. It's at the level of in some places being incorporated into law, but it's happening in a very high register and it's for the most part a theoretical discussion. Um, But you're right, Thomas Paine is a perfect example of someone who takes many of those ideas and then puts it into a, the vernac- you know, a, a vernacular, an everyday language, and really, at times, it's. If for any listeners who haven't read it, I encourage you to grab it because the, the power of the rhetoric is just extraordinary. But I mean, it's pretty crude at times. Um, it uses a lot of biblical language, which not in not in a crude way, but basically takes in, in some of these enlightenment ideas and reflect refracts them through a language. That would have been more resonant for, for pious Christians um, in the United States. So on the one hand, it's a more it's it's arguably even though he's considered to be a great deist, he's working a lot with biblical tropes, but he's also working with a very common or, or lo, uh, 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 rhetoric a rhetoric in a lower register, so that these ideas can be translated to if you will, average colonialists. And they can understand that these ideas that are being talked about don't just need to be theoretical. You know, they don't need to happen in another time and place, but in fact, they can happen right now. And, you know, earlier you were asking me about the kind of like our ideas and effect or ideas a cause, where do they, you know, kind of fit into the material engine, if you will, of American history. And I think Thomas Paine's, com- um, um, Thomas Paine's common sense is a is a classic example, perhaps the best one we've got, about a set of ideas being articulated in such a way and with such power at exactly the right time um, that it helps give a real impetus and moral force behind Americans taking up or or then colonial colonists taking up arms against their you know their own government, essentially, right. Um, so I would argue that that's an example of, and in fact, in, in in the book, I refer to it as Thomas Paine and the War of Ideas, because what I'm trying to do is invite readers to understand that the Revolutionary War, first and foremost, was a, a war of ideas. You know, the colonists needed to be able to imagine what that republic, um, what that freedom, what throwing off the yoke of this pharaoh would look like before they could take action to try to achieve just that.
1: Okay. So now we've got, uh, we go through the American revolution and now we have to figure out as a nation, what it means to be an American, not to be British citizens any longer, not to be Europeans, but to be Americans, which, you know, in Europe, people were defined by their identity was tied to the land where they came from. You were Italian, you were German because you, or you were born in a certain village from a certain family. And now we're in America, people are coming from all over the place, and you have to f- create uh, some sense of what it means to be an American. And I think we're still struggling with the idea: what is it? Who is an American? W- what does it mean to be an American? We don't have the. We don't have the. We can't say, well, we're all born on the same soil, and we all, you know, have the same ancestry, the same DNA, the same religion. Uh, so, how how do, how do we do? How do we how did americans even deal with that how to become what is an american
0: well you're hitting on um obviously one of uh, the key themes of the book and the reason why it's a key theme of the book is because it's in fact a key theme in american history it's you know one of the abiding leitmotifs of american american history uh from you know, the earliest contact to the present, which is, you know, what does it mean to be an American? Who gets to be an American? Who's in, who's out? Um, where can we build walls to keep, you know, Americans to the what we're going to consider Americans to the one side versus, you know, those who are the others to the other side. So as you know, this is still with us today. Um, and where those borders are has changed dramatically over the several hundred years of our history, um, and it's still you know being fought over today, but I think that you're pointing precisely to a moment in American history where these questions um, have a particular urgency. Um, they're certainly very worrisome, and that is immediately after the American Revolution leading into the period that we call, you know, the, the early republic. So the late 18th century, early 19th century. And what was clear to a lot of observers in this period, and by that I mean, you know, 1880s, 1890s, 1900, 1910s, um, into that antebellum period, was that they were looking around and saying, you know, we may have politically achieved our goal to get rid of you know, to 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 no longer be supplicants, yet to no longer be subjects to uh, England. Um, but intellectually, um, emotionally, um, uh, culturally, we are still, um, you know, as 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 deferential as we were before. In other words, there was a worry that there had been a political break, but not a meaningful, if you will, cultural uh, break um with with england and so what what we see in this period around you know the late 18th, early 19th century, or what I'm calling in the book "Made in America 1.0. Um, and I just do it so that you know, and, and to try to make it kind of accessible. Which was what what did it, what did it mean at that time? Then to say no, let us have our, a real Declaration of Independence, not just politically, but in other ways. So some of this made in, in America 1.0, we see with someone like a Noah Webster, who was an educator, um, and what disturbed. Webster and your listeners may, the name Webster may be familiar because if they look on their bookshelf, they probably all have a Webster's dictionary on their bookshelf. And that Webster was in fact, this very same Noah Webster. And the origins of the dictionary were that he was an educator at the time. And what bothered him was that America, at least British English was still what was spoken, the British English that was spoken in America was exactly what was spoken across You know, um, over in England, and he thought, in order for there to be a, a for a nation to really be a nation, it needed its own language, and so what Webster went about doing was to rewrite every. English word then in, in usage, so that it would have a particular American spelling. And this was his way to kind of create some distance between the language that's spoken here and this language that was spoken back in Mother England. And, and, and I'm sure your listeners, if they've ever noticed, you know, in America, we say things like, we'll spell splendor, S P L um, E N D O R, but in British English, it's O U um, R. Words like, um capitalization or anything with Zation for us is with a Z, um, but in England it's with an S. Well, these were all innovations from Noah Webster as a way to kind of found what, you know, a a national language that was particular um to 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 Americans as as a people. And there are other efforts, you know, other efforts at this time also to try to make Find things that sort of ground new cultural efforts, uh, new expressions that would be particular to America and would help also distinguish America um, from from Europe.
1: Now, you go on after the early republic period, which uh, you talk about several different uh, intellectual movements or ideas that were very influential you, you talk about transcendentalism and so what did american transcendentalism bring to an already religious people because at the time it was emerging you know it was we're dealing with here with a second great revival and the second great awakening and lots of revivals everywhere why transcendentalism
0: well um transcendentalism is actually one of my favorite Intellectual movements to study. I, I love teaching it. I mean, you just put Emerson in front of students, and something magical happens. So, um, actually, in many ways, transcendentalism. Um, Charlie Capper, the intellectual historian Charlie Capper, who's written beautifully about Margaret Fuller, and he's he's a major scholar of transcendentalism, talks about um transcendentalism as the first. Native intellectual movement in the United States. Um, and in many ways, he's he's absolutely right about that. So so what what's inspiring many of the transcendentalist thinkers, Emerson um, um, uh, oh, help me out here, you know, Margaret Fuller, the uh, Thoreau, had Thoreau um, um, all the Brook farm folks um, was this idea of trying to come up with ideas, um, come up with what they called a philosophy and a natural letters that could what would be expressive of a true democratic culture right so, so something that that is produced here in America on uh, in, from in a democratic, Country, and that would do more to foster democratic commitments. Um, so, with Emerson, you know, one his one of his important pieces is called "The American Scholar," and you know that that's another piece where he's expressing anxiety that Americans are still, you know, feasting off the scraps that are thrown from the European table. And intellectually, what we need here is man thinking. You know, we need to not just inherit thought as fully formed, but we need to be thinking um, with our own thoughts, unmediated, and in a way that bespeaks, a dem- you know, certain democratic commitments. And transcendentalism is in part a movement to, if you will, democratize or, or, or see what a de- democratic philosophy would look like that saw the grandeur and potential of each and every human being. Um, but, and I mean, it, you touched on the religious factor, M- most of the the, the tra- early transcendentalists were themselves Unitarians, um, and they were disenchanted with Unitarianism because it seemed too distant and cold and intellectualized and not something um, that had, had life in it. And so transcendentalism, in a way, intellectually owes a lot to Unitarianism. But what it does is to try to bring in many more elements of, of romanticism um, into that. But at the same time, you're right, in the larger um, religious field in American life, this is a period of great religious revivals. And in some ways, you can look at the transcendentalists as actually pushing back against this, right? So trying to keep a space for something like the sacred, um, something like the divinity, you know, Jesus in each and every one of us, but the divinity of the human soul. So there is a religiosity, um, a deep spirituality to the transcendentalist, but they are definitely pushing a back um, against the kind of wide scale evangelical revivalism that's going on—not um, to make too too strong a distinction between the head and the heart—but um, I think many of the the transcendentalists were worried that the kind of passionate revivalism that was going on in the um, you know throughout the United States was a kind of frenzy of religious fervor, but not the balanced, reflective, um, contemplative sort of thought that they also thought was, you know, was, was crucial for, for, for basically living with one another and also carrying off a democracy. It's
1: interesting to me that it seems that from the very beginning, part of the question to uh, answer, part of the answer to what is an American is for American intellectuals and thinkers to try to come up with a uniquely American philosophy, and we i'm i'm going to skip right through darwin even though that is a great part of this uh to pragmatism because we're looking for the great american novel but we're looking for the you know the great singular american philosophy something that we can say to the world this is uniquely ours and this is how we are unique and not and we are different from europe can you talk about pragmatism uh a little bit and uh what is pragmatism uh you know, people are, Americans are known for being pragmatic people. People use the term pragmatic in a very sort of pedestrian sort of way. But what is pragmatism as a philosophy and why did it emerge? Why did we need pragmatism? Since we had transcendentalism, we had evangelicalism, you know, we had lots of different things.
0: Why this? We got a lot of isms here because I do want to bring back in Darwinism and talking about pragmatism. <laughs> but that's sure, you all can do that isms. if you want. Um Um, uh, So pragmatism is um, a philosophy, if if you will. Well, yes, it is a philosophy. Sorry, it's the name that a a group of thinkers in the late 19th century ascribed to a new way of thinking, um, that they're all trying to... Uh, suss out, or you know, test out. They're trying to innovate, um, and then they 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 seize on. I mean, they debate what the name should be. Charles Sanders first thought it to be pragmatism, although his his idea was slightly different. But the uh, John Dewey refers to this as instrumentalism. So the nomenclature is 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 contested to be sure. But pragmatism is the name that has the most traction to describe a certain. Set of ideas and a certain way of thinking that really has huge um, has has a lot of appeal among some really extraordinary thinkers in the late 19th century and into the early 20th century, and frankly, is still with us today. Um, and what 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 brings them all together under this rubric of, of pragmatism was um, well, one John Dewey, I think, uh, puts this. Um, uh, it has a wonderful piece from 1910 on what pragmatism owes to Darwinism. That's not the exact title, but it's something like that. And what, what Dewey argues is that Darwinism um, um, or just by extension the you know, evolutionary theory, what it does is to impress on thinkers um, that the world is ever in flux, you know, that nothing is in its fixed or final form, but that the world is an unfolding place where change, mutability, um, and contingency, you know, happens all over the place. And so what Dewey says as, as if you will, a spokesperson for this intellectual movement, he says, if we understand from Darwin, if we understand coming out of evolution, that the world is in flux, how can it be that our ideas about truth that the philosophies that we hold dear to are not in flux. You know, how is it possible that 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 what it is we hold to be true is ever, you know, is, is somehow frozen in time, and yet we're all willing to believe that the material world, you know, um, is changing dramatically? And he said that that just doesn't jibe intellectually. What that what 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 Darwinism means, or what evolution impresses upon a serious thinker, is that truth itself. Must also be contingent. If the world is ever developing, you know, and ever unfolding, then what we consider to be true also needs to be subject to change, revision, re-examination, testing. And so, what the pragmatists believe, and here, you know, the, I think the, the, the greatest figure—I don't want to say the greatest figure—but um, well, John Dewey and, and William James really are probably the the, the two foremost prag- pragmatic thinkers. The Voices of Pragmatism, um, James being of an older generation, Dewey was the next generation, um, was to say, okay, so let's let's now think about what truth would be in a universe like this. And what they they argued was that truth shouldn't be um, claims that are, you know, truth claims should not have the status of truth because from the, from where they came from. In other words, they shouldn't have authority because they came by way of your your a pulpit or your pastor um, or a particular book or a particular tradition. That's old. It doesn't mean that it's wrong. It just means that it may be, have been true at one time. What pragmatism says is you need to take that idea now and test it in lived experience. Yeah. So when those ideas were once formulated, they may have been true at one time. But now our job in this dynamic universe is to test those ideas um, and or if you will be instrument, look at those ideas instrumentally. How are they working now? Do they still have traction? Do they still um, help to explain things? Um, James, unfortunately, at one point referred to the cash value of ideas. So does that idea still have cash value? And he was, you know, ridiculed for using, you know, such a yucky, you know, sort of capitalist metaphor, if you will, and he apologized for it. But basically, what pragmatism does is to say the authority of an idea does not come from, is not dependent on where it came from in the past. It depends on where it can take you now and in the future. So that is to say, what pragmatism does is to say that all truth claims, and it can be anything, has a shot at being true if it can demonstrate its 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 value, um, if it can demonstrate its usefulness, and so what this does is to shift our conception of truth from origins to one of consequences. The idea behind pragmatism, in in ideal form, but I also think in in the way that many of these thinkers really practiced it, is that it was more democratic. Right. Because it doesn't matter. The authority doesn't come from the idea, the origins of the idea. It doesn't it's not about someone's station or someone's class or someone's privilege or someone's education. Ideas are tested in reality. And so pragmatism was also an effort to come up with a philosophy that was more that reflected the democratic commitments, you know, of, of these thinkers and what they hoped was of a larger America. And if you, what you're describing there
1: is seems to me like a very uh American idea because we don't have as Americans didn't have, you know, the past of like European past to turn to, your your parents, the the traditions, very strong traditions and and and, and lineages and land that we were really tied to. Everything was an experiment. Everything was we've got to go out there, you know, the frontier. And I'm talking about the frontier in terms of existential frontier and try out Uh, new things because we're not tied any longer to these, uh, bound to, you know, what came before. So it makes sense that pragmatism would emerge on the American continent. Now, I'm going to change the topic here. I want to talk about um, where do uh, African-American, Native Americans, women who both embrace and challenge American ideas – fall you know fall into this because where do they fit in the history of ideas not just as objects of study or objects of commentary but actually as subjects um,
0: uh, let me quickly just touch on something. You made a, an extremely important point and talk about the Enlightenment and its blind spots. Talk about authors and their blind spots. Um, you you uh, pointed at something crucial that I failed to mention, and that is what is particular about America, of course, is how pluralistic it is, right? from Right from the start and throughout its history, this is an incredibly, exceptionally pluralistic place uh, in terms of people's backgrounds um, and their beliefs. And so this was part of... What goes into pragmatism, right, which is that if you have communities where people have a very pluralistic backgrounds and very diverse sets of commitments, who gets to adjudicate the truth claims? Right. If we don't have the church that we all go to, you know, um, subscribe to, if we do not have a Kaiser or a king, there is no authority above The human beings who are the citizens of this place. How do you adjudicate different truth claims in a pluralist society? And the answer was, you know, that's the answer for them was was pragmatism. So I'm just glad that you mentioned that, Lily, and it was also intended to respond not simply to the dark, you know, um, the scientific you know, revelations from the 19th century, but also something much more longstanding in American history, which is how you can build community with all, of, with, with among such, such diversity. Um, how can you find commens- con- consensus amongst so much diversity? So
1: now I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you a question that's really not, you don't really address this much in your book, but I think it's, it's the next question for the uh, Americans is, in an age of global, globalization, where not only do we have a pluralism within our, you know, our society, but we are now part of a big international global society where goods and ideas and people are going across borders everywhere. And really, the borders are dissolving. I think that that is why we're trying, attempting to build a physical wall, because we realize that the borders are dissolving. Where, are, where do you think American ideas are going to go? Are we going to impose those on the rest of the world, or is the world going to d- to to begin to and already has I think uh, change even our our formulations?
0: Oh Lord! Um, it, when when someone <laughs> I know it's a big question. It's a
1: it's a big question. It's a speculative question. And I think it's it's like, you know, if there's a history of
0: ideas, right. there's definitely That's a future. Very, thank you. And sometimes uh, lately I, I feel kind of despairing and I'm not sure what that future is going to look like. Um, uh, I, I have no idea. I have no, I mean, there, the, um, the the sure, the past is prologue to the future, but um, I think how things are going to play out from here um, is beyond um, something that I'm professionally trained to do, but. You know I understand that. I know it's, it's, yeah. it's actually just a fun but question will, to play I around can, with. I can answer it. And that is if Americans do not do hold on to certain traditions, which have been crucial for their survival, you know, if not the flourishing of democracy, then, um, I think, um, um, you know, all bets are off. So um, I invoke John Dewey here, who in 1939, um, and it was in, um, he was being honored at an event, if I'm not mistaken, it was his 80th birthday. So think 1939, right? This is um, fascism and, and the specter of fascism and totalitarianism is, you know, as intense as ever. And the concerns about, you know, is America going to be drawn into, is there going to be another war? Is America going to be a drawn into a war is first and foremost among everyone's minds in 1939. And especially John Dewey, you know, the foremost, a uh, philosopher of, of, of the day. And what Dewey said in this piece, and I think it's really, um, re- resonant right now. Um, so folks may want to take a look at it. Um, is he says, we should never forget democracy is not, um, is not a foregone conclusion. And you can lose it. (laughs) Um, Losing it is a lot easier than gaining it ever was. Um, And so um, what Americans, you know, he warned against Americans being complacent with their democratic institutions, certainly in the face, in this case, you know, of fascism um, from abroad. And I would argue we now have it in a much more profound way from within. Not just abroad, and what what Dewey argued is that democracy requires a certain mindset. It requires a certain kind of intellectual nimbleness, um, and it also requires commitment to certain kinds of intellectual institutions. And again, this is just harkening back to the founding fathers, all of whom thought that education—you could not have, you know—a a citizenry if they were not educated. And so, you know, across the board, now, again, you know, they put limits on who should get the education, um, but the language um, uh, um, was that, you know, in order to be, um, to, to, to practice self-sovereignty, in order to be citizens and not subjects, we needed a baseline of education, we needed a baseline of access to intellectual opportunity, We needed a steady flow of ideas and then hence, you know, to to invoke the pragmatists with Dewey. And we need to test and reformulate those ideas again and again and again. And if you don't do that, what you risk, um, and then this is a a line that Lionel Trilling picks up in the liberal tradition in 1950, is you have a closing of the intellectual accounts. You have a rigidity. And where once there was a free flow of ideas and argumentation and imagination, to use um, Trilling's word, you have something hardened and it's called ideology. Um, And so, you know, here I, I, I invoke this more as a warning rather than as a, you know, so this is not me as a soothsayer, but just me as in trying to be in conversation with some of the best thinkers you know, I think in our American past, who have looked at similar situations that we now find ourselves in, and the way that they thought that America was going to have a future that we w- that um, that was worthy, you know, of its of the best moments of its past was a was a commitment to a kind of openness, um, intellectual dialogue and debate, um, an elevation of this discourse you know, not a gutting of of discourse. Um, So, so that's that, you know, that's, that's what I I would say is that um, we're not going to find our way out of this morass. If we keep um, allowing ourselves to stay locked into the terms of debate as they are now, Um, certainly if we, you know, Um, rather than saying truths are contested and we need to debate them, to just say, as Drudy Giuliani did, you know, well, truth isn't truth, and just shrug your shoulders and throw your hands up. Jennifer, I think that's an excellent place for for us to stop. Um, Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you so much. Thanks for the conversation. And thank you to our
1: listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. This edition has been produced in cooperation with the Society for U.S. Intellectual History. This is your host, Lillian Barger.